my friends who listen to Future Primitive. We are again with Max Dashu, which um, I just felt myself as we were starting this interview, and, and I'm really, really, really happy we're doing this. Max Dashu founded the Suppressed History Archives in 1970 to research and document women's history from an international perspective. She built a collection of 1,500 slides and 30,000 digital images and has created 150 slideshows on female cultural heritages across human history. Dashu's work bridges the gap between academia and grassroots education. Max Dashu is known for her expertise on ancient female iconography and in world archaeology, women shamans, witches and the witch hunts, mother right cultures, patriarchies and the origins of domination. Dashu has just published Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, from year 700 to 1100. This book is volume 7 in the 15-volume series, Secret History of Witches, with two more volumes forthcoming. She has also produced two videos, Women's Power in Global Perspective and Women's Shamans, the Ancients. So welcome back, Max, and you have big news for us today. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to say that I have sent off to the printer my new next book, which is a coloring book. It's a goddess coloring book, and it's 104 pages, so it has 50 images. Actually, there's more, <laughs> but uh, goddesses and spirits and ancestors from all around the planet. Wow. And so it's... I'm, I'm really happy about this. And it will be available when and how? It will be available. You can, pre-orders are available on the Valletta Press website now, but it will be ready to ship by November 1st or at the latest November 3rd. I'm about to find that out from the printer. So we can be coloring by Christmas. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, no, you, I mean, in the United States, you, you will be able to have it by, you know, November 10th at the latest. You know, so coloring for Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to do a European edition of it also. I'm still working on that part because it's so expensive to ship overseas. So um, yes, that's yes. coming soon. Great, great. Well, uh, we are, in my estimation, on Chapter 5 of Witches and Pagans. Um <laughs> And uh, this chapter is called The Runes, 
chapter five, yes. And um, so I wonder if um, you would start us off, because most of us know the runes by uh, Ralph Bloom. We used to pull the runes out of a out of a little blue bag, and uh, if you would tell us the uh, the true story of the runes. And sure, you know the the runes as we know them as as a Germanic script and also as a divinatory um, lot casting. This is part of this is part of the meaning, but there's a whole broader context for that. So not only the runes, but the old word runa, which means mystery, and at least as far as when they translated the, the Bible, which was in Greek, into uh, Gothic, the word they used for the Greek word mysterion mm-hmm. was runa. Uh-huh. And so it has, a, it has a really broad swath of meanings, and I, I list some of them here. I actually start the chapter with a, with a picture of the, uh, of the runes as they were known, you know, as they were incised usually onto wood. Uh, and we can talk about some of the, the ceremonies where that was done, not just the lot casting, but the use of them in, in ceremony. But there's this whole, whole range of meanings to the word rune in Germanic, from whisper or murmur to secret, mystical, um, converse intimately, uh, Secret intention, beloved person. Uh, this is in Anglo-Saxon, German, Norse, and also in Irish, Gaelic, and Welsh. There are related words to this complex of meanings. So that gives you a little idea about how that that naming got applied to the lots. And there are references in various Germanic sources to rune sticks and people incising the patterns onto sticks. They've even found stabs with runic inscriptions on them in Danish bogs and different places. And then also you find runes written onto funerary stones in, the, in Scandinavia, particularly in Sweden, where uh, some very amazing engravings. So a lot of people haven't seen this. This is part of our hidden heritages, where you have these really swirling, spiraling knotwork patterns that have serpents worked into them or dragons. And then along the line of the body of the serpent very often is a runic inscription commemorating the person who had died. So that's kind of an interesting twist because, you know, they're, they're actually doing this on stone. But really, you know, it, it's so much broader than that because there is with the lot casting and the mystery and the secret like the hidden truth aspect yeah. the word rune and, uh, and it, into all kinds of ceremonial acts and this is where I start in, in the book on this subject because you know divination is such a, a broad category and it's like that the way that mystery is embedded in nature so that when you are walking the land and you're watching the pattern of the wind going through the trees or water waves going across the water. Um, All of those things, for many people, I mean, you've probably experienced this yourself, tend to unfold insight if you can stop your mind and just kind of like go into a more receptive state and 
open to the messages in nature, this would certainly have been considered part of Una, you know. And so there were a lot of forms of divination besides lot casting. For example, in um, in German, there's a writer, this is pretty late, 1455, there be women and men which dare to make fires and in the fire to see things past and to come. And so they're talking about fire gazing, looking into the glowing embers yeah. and letting that movement of power there stir things up in your consciousness. You know, if you're really being attentive, then you can start to draw insight about things that you want to know about, that you need to know. And and, and this was also something that was done, There's a, the English word for this is scrying, and so it usually involves looking into a bowl or a cauldron of water, uh-huh. you know, or a mirror. And, you know, this mirror gazing is something that actually got carried over into North America by some of the settlers. Uh, you know, a friend of mine gave me a mirror that had belonged to her grandmother, and it was painted black, an oval mirror. And she used this, she was, I guess, psychic, she used this to prognosticate. You know, so this is somebody down in Bakersfield, California, mm-hmm. somehow had carried along this little piece out of that old vast heritage where she was accessing wisdom through scrying. And then I, and I have a little, uh, some pictures here yes, of yes. crystal balls. because Crystal you know, balls, it, yes. It, it's really interesting to me how many of the stereotypes about witches or about psychic, you know, second sight, as they call it in Scotland, really are, have some basis in the archaeological record. And so they found a lot of female burials in like the 400s, 500s, 600s beginning in the Middle Ages, uh, women buried with crystal balls. And sometimes the, the crystal is seated inside a little sieve. They had these sieves that weren't even as big as the palm of your hand that they used for, they, it was like a common tool because they would, they would uh, strain the leaves out of the wine. And so you need this sieve around whenever you were drinking. And so these women had sieves tied to their belts, and they had crystal balls tied to their belts, hanging, suspended like pendants, right? Mm-hmm. And the sieve, as well as the crystal, has they both been historically used in divination as pendulums. So you're, you're holding the pendulum, and the sieve is dangling there, and you're asking questions, and you're watching the way the sieve moves. And so, you know... Depending on the diviner, you could say, okay, if it moves this way, then it means yes, and if it moves that way, it means no. And then they ask questions, and they watch the movement of the sieve. And you can look at this, if you're not particularly magically inclined, as something that accesses the, the resources of the unconscious. You know, that, that the body, that, that things come through the body that may not be controlled by the conscious mind. You know, but um, so sieves and and crystal balls, and I think that's also true for the witch's wand, because we all knew this from the fairy stories we grew up with, Mm -hmm. even the cartoons. But the wand as a staff of power.
that's also attested in the archaeological record, and we talked about that last time. And also bones. Oh, sure, bones. And casting, that's a good point. Casting uh, knuckle bones of sheep often uh-huh. were, were not just in Europe, but in many places. Central Asia, West Africa, a lot of societies used sheep knuckle bones as uh, lots to be cast. I guess because, you know, there's something about them, they can kind of roll and tumble as you throw them. Yeah. yeah. And then there's something about how they're marked or whatever significators they use for what what edges of them come turned up after you cast them. Why is it, do you think, that men are rarely find with, found with amulets? Because uh, you have people like Merlin and other... Mm-hmm. other. Well, this, this was a comment that Audrey Meany made in her book on Anglo-Saxon magic and amulets. And uh, she, she says, men are so rarely found with amulets. So that, that may be somewhat culturally specific to that part of the world because we certainly know men wearing amulets in, you know, the Sahel and the Sahara, mm-hmm. and, you know, yes. in, in uh, West Asia and different places. Uh, so there's that part. But I think also there is this way in which women very often have that, that spiritual imperative going on, you know, of singing over things, doing ceremony, mm-hmm. keeping altars, all of these things that it may be related to that, and, and especially because of women's involvement with both the care of children and elders, disabled, uh-huh. and also their work in healing, which is related to all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, women as herbalists and women as cures, then that, that may also tie into why amulets were so important to women. You know, because making amulets uh, for women who are about to bear children or for the children themselves. You know, that, that could be one angle of it. Right, right. I think in general, women are more likely to do things like consult psychics or, or have some form of ceremony like that, you know, just private individual things in life, keep altars, for example, in my experience. So do you think that... Um the difference, a great difference between the sexes exists from way, way back, that we've had different inclinations from way back? Well, that's a complicated question because I think that so much of this has to do with the layers of culture that have accumulated over long periods of time, you know, so that, say, for example, in Native North America, the patterns can look very different than they do in Europe at least in some ways. And uh, there's, just, there's just this way that, you know, culture is, it, it's, you know, what's really interesting about the word itself is it means that which grows up, which, that which grows. So the word cult and culture, uh, all of this stuff, culture is, it, it is a grown phenomenon. It's like an energetic growth that humans co-create over time and it accumulates and we choose which aspects of culture to maintain and retain uh-huh. you know yeah. and so that varies a lot for often political reasons 
you know, in the way human societies constitute themselves, you know, so that the more male-dominated the society becomes, the more secretive methods women may need to use, and this would apply for people in slavery as well, to uh, find ways to gain their own objectives Mm -hmm. where they're being thwarted structurally and systemically at every turn. You know, we want you to do this. We want you to marry and have children. We want you to obey your husband. And the women are, no, I don't want to do those things, and I'm not going to fight you openly about it, but instead I'm going to wear this amulet. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to chant this, this spell. I'm going to go to this secret place in nature and invoke the fairy women to help me and, and stop my husband from beating me or whatever it may be. Right. You know? So uh, I guess what I'm saying is that, especially on this subject of witchcraft and in the, in the period of time that we're dealing with yes. this book and others that I'm, I'm tracking all this through, that uh, we are talking about patriarchal societies and sexual politics is That's really right. part of the picture, hmm. you know. And so when we look at what, what men do and what women do, or women wearing amulets and not so many of the men, then that has to be part of our explanation, the way I see it. So uh, it's interesting that the word ethnic comes from the word heathen. Well, that's one theory. That's That's one one theory, theory. okay. the, um, The origin of the word. And uh, this, this ethne in Greek has been proposed as having been derived from, uh, or actually both explanations. They, they're not really saying the Greek is derived from the, the Germanic word heathen, but some scholars have, have suggested that heathen could have been descri- derived from Greek ethnos, which means a people. And so I talk about the origin of this word heathen. There's been a lot of argument about this in in academic worlds, but this is a word that occurs in all the Germanic languages. That's our starting point for heathen. And so aside from that theory that ethne entered Germanic languages from a Gothic translation of the the Christian Bible, where they're they're calling a Gentile woman hevno, that instead of ethne, which is the Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, most linguists don't agree with this. They're saying, well, you know, there, there are different sound shift rules that would be broken by this. There's like, these are patterns they track very closely in historical linguistics. However, you know, nevertheless, in Latin languages, they picked up this ethnos word from the Greeks, and they do use the word ethnic or ethnique in French to mean pagan. And so um, that's, that's how it works out in medieval Latin sources, is that they, they do use et- ethnicus mm-hmm. as, as a title for pagan. And there are others. They use another word, gentilis, in Latin, from a Greek word meaning a clan or a tribe. And, of course, Gentile, we know in English, primarily has associations with people who means people who are not Jews. So it took on a very specific sense, but not so much in the Romance languages, where especially historically in the Middle Ages and, and even afterwards, uh, the word uh, gentilio, for example, in Spanish, means pagan. 
uh, you know, various derivatives of that word. And so um, that that's one aspect of the word heathen. Now, I discovered something really interesting about this, because if, if you look at all the Germanic words for heathen mm-hmm. in Norse and English and German, etc., then everybody understands that this is the same word, uh, the same root as heath, like, you know, the heather on the hill and the Scots going out onto the heaths and all of these mm-hmm. things. So that was known. And so it really was very comparable to the way that uh, Latin uh, used the word pagan, because pagan referred to a rural person. And heathen also seemed to imply those people out there in the sticks, almost literally, you know, people who were living in rural populations. And this makes a lot of sense when you understand the, the cultural patterns in medieval Europe. Uh, even in, in, in the Roman Empire, Christianity begins in the cities, you know, and spreads primarily in the cities. And then in the Middle Ages also, uh, the rural people are the last ones to let go of their old folk religions. Yes, yes. So they're, they, they're being called heathens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that relating to the fact that they're out there in the bush. So um, anyway, I, I made an interesting discovery because one of the witch word roots I could not seem to track a good etymology for down <laughs> was the whole complex of words in Romance languages. So Spanish, bruja, mm-hmm. bruja in Portuguese and Galician, also Brisha in Catalan, Bruxo in Gascon, uh, Occitanian languages of southern France. Um, And so this is southwestern Europe that they use this word for witch. And so there were theories about this, and Julio Baroja tried to derive it from a Moorish root that referred to the the holy plant Datura, which is also an ingredient in witches' flying ointments much later in Europe. And there have been suggestions that, no, it was brusca, Latin, which means tree frog, and somebody else, no, no, it's a Celtic root, brixta, which means incantation, spell, and magic in Gaulish and Old Irish. And then I ran across a linguist, a Catalan linguist, so this is his own language, Juan Coromines, Mm-hmm. And he links bruja or brusha with a Gallo Latin root broixa or brusca. And this word had three primary meanings, according to him mm-hmm. heath or wild lands, woman of the heath specifically, and there, there goes the witch meaning, and by extension, people of the heath as pagan, just in the same parallel way to English heathen. And so. Another another Catalan linguist, Tonsales, says these usages are exactly parallel the three meanings of German Haida, as well as the oldest meaning of pagan, as people from a rural locale. Uh-huh. And so that I was blown away by this because it showed this parallelism that a parallel naming pattern in two different groups of languages. One was Romance, and one was Germanic. Wow. And both of them referred to pagans as being rural people who were, you know, also the ones that were being called superstitious and the ones that were being called uh, heathen, you know, as, as retaining 
their old religion. You know, and a lot of modern pagans talk a lot about the old religion because it became necessary to sort of reframe all of this in 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 modern times because the word witch and the gods and goddesses had been so thoroughly demonized, you know, and all of this was being projected as devil worship. And so, you know, in that reclamation of the new pagans saying, well, you know, these are the old religions. They're religions. They're not devil worship. Yes. They are competing, not really originally competing, but they became the competition for the new Christian order, which was propagated and enforced by the aristocratic state. So kings and, and lords, dukes and barons, you know, the, the, the people who controlled the land, who ruled the serfs, are, are the ones who are like, yeah, we're going to build churches and we all go to mass. And then there's these, these peasants over here who are doing heathen things. That's fascinating. That that it's uh, it's a um, it's a class thing. It's it is a class. Wow, thing. It's a class thing is also an ethnic difference. You know, so that that's important because uh, you know it's the, when we look at at Europe, there's a tendency to say, well, okay, they had a class system, but everybody was Christian in the same way, and they weren't. I mean, some people were not Christian at all, depending on when and where you're talking about. And others may actually be attending church and having their children baptized, but at the same time, they're going home and doing hearth ceremonies to Frau Hola or whoever, you know, the old pagan spinner goddess is, you know, in their part of the world. So that for the peasants, if they were Christian, they didn't, see that as being in contradiction with their ancestral customs, which they loved and which they wanted to keep going. And whereas, you know, the bishops, who were almost entirely aristocratic, and, you know, the the lordly rulers were really uh, repressing, you know, taking great pains to stamp out these old folk religious practices. But it makes sense to me because when I exclaimed that word, it's a class thing. What I meant by that is the further away from the earth, the yeah. more separated from the earth. That's right. The further away from these, 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 these innate understandings. Yes. I mean, you know, the peasants are living on the land. And, you know, the aristocrats are starting to build castles. And, you know, yeah. they have with all their food, everything. They're, they're basically a parasitic class who are confiscating, you know, a third of the harvest, a third of the milk, a third of the cattle, whatever it is that the, the common people are, are raising. They're, they're basically uh, appropriating it. Yeah. You know, in the, that's because it, it wasn't a money economy. Uh, not until the late Middle Ages do you really have a money economy. And so they're, take, they're seizing goods in kind as their tribute, basically. And the peasants are the ones out there on the land. And, you know, this is another thing people don't understand about medieval Europe, is it was, the continent was almost entirely forested. You know, you don't, people don't realize the level of wilderness that existed 
through that whole time period because Europe has been so patched off into plots. And, you know, so of course, the aristocrat, aristocratic class was also the ones who were, you know, most actively doing this, this land seizure, you know, and saying, this is mine, I rule this, I rule that. And then uh, gradually more and more of it is being cut down, turned into pasture, turned into fields for, mm-hmm. for farming uh, as time goes on. But Europe was wilderness. A lot of, the, the most of the land was wild in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's something that, you know, it's hard for us to project how different that was, that there was so much old-growth forest for example, you know, that was around, that people could go out to that, you know, ancient trees. There's even, I don't, I wish I could find this. When I, in the 70s, when we were all beginning to research this, and, I, you know, I was starting to work on this book, somebody, I saw some source, I don't remember anymore, I wish I could, or what it was, that talked about female mystics that lived in trees. Uh-huh. And you know, yew trees in particular have a habit of splitting near the ground and sort of like a cave opening up inside the tree. Yeah. You know, and there are actually shrines of uh, the Virgin Mary now in some of these trees yeah. in Britannia and different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of aspects of the shamanic history that are lost. There's just little hints like that, and I haven't found a way to really document that or where it came from. But the idea of somebody going out into the forest like they did in Siberia, like they did in North America, and living very close to the land, you know, in order to develop spiritual insight. You know, it's a a seeking for for, for wisdom. And yet... uh I think when you're speaking, you know how words in different languages have different resonances yeah. in your body. And as I listen to you, I realize, I, I mean, I have a great attachment, admiration, and love for trees. And I see that the word in French, arbre, has a completely different resonance in my body than the word tree in English. Sure. There's 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 something in in the in the French language that obliges you to see a tree as something very noble, even now. And I suppose it's because it, it's so forested, it was so forested. I mean, you know, but tree is also, I mean, the, the same would, in terms of the forest, that would apply to Germany also, even maybe more so. Yes. Or, or, or you know, and I don't know about ancient Britain. But, you know, it is, it's like, there's a taste to words. There's a taste to words. Oh, yes. And coming from you, that's so true. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I, that's why I love linguistics, because, you know, uh, when I was in college, I actually was going to major in linguistics, but I, I dropped it because they wanted to make language into algebra. Yeah. You know, and it's like no, no, no. That it's it's about it's about the the feeling that's in words. It's almost like a synesthesia. Do you know what this word means? No. Synesthesia is when people like say, "Oh, the letter E is green," 
and the letter A is this color. You know, uh-huh. and they have like an association of words or letters or whatever the object may be with colors or numbers, and there's this kind of way that it all kind of blends. It, it's, it, it's a very individual thing on the one hand, but it can also be a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, they did an interesting study recently, uh, French and German. In French, it's le pont. And so it's, right? Am I right? The bridge? Le pont, yes. Right, so it's masculine. And in German, it's a feminine noun. Ah, and yes. so this thing about gendered nouns, you know, uh, some people have said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what gender the noun is. That's just the language, but it doesn't mean anything to people. Oh, but yes, it does. Study, and they said, well, no. You, you, they asked the Germans to say things about a bridge, and they used this very feminizing language. And they asked the French to say things about a bridge, and they used this very masculinizing language. You know, so it, there is an effect of the way language, the way the language is put together on the way we think about things. No, it's the way of uh, the, the noun that you put on a word, because uh, I speak five languages, I can say that it's a way of conditioning it's it definitely conditioned me what the noun was before word. Well, that was why when I was in high school, my sister brought home from her college textbook the Horse Sapir Hypothesis. It was a book uh, by these two linguists who were postulating that language shapes, in fact, the way we think about the world. Yes. And one of their uh, their examples was like in English, we just have a word box. You know, you put it in a box, and box can mean various things, but there's a basic description of what a box is. But in Hopi, they said, (laughs) it is not like that. They don't have the same kind of absolute category of nouns. Instead, they sort of wrap the language around various concepts. And so there might be one uh, part of the word, one particle, sound particle, that means something that is hollow, and another sound particle that might describe the material it's made out of. And so the way you think about the world is different based on the language that you're using. And I, I just always, that always just seemed true to me. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Perhaps we should return to runes. Okay, so runes. So let's yes. do runes. Uh, we could talk a little bit about the magical use of runes. Yes, yes. Oh, this is, I like this line. There's an Eddic poem that describes the runes as regim kunum, of divine origin, or literally it means kin to the powers. Uh-huh. That's pretty deep. <laughs> yes. But, but anyway, um, there are descriptions in the sagas, various Icelandic sources, that talk about ceremonies involving runes. And so people would wear runes as amulets, certainly. This is something the Anglo-Saxons also do. You find pots inscribed with runes in, in England, and uh, there's, there's a lot of different things along those lines. But there is certainly the use of either chips of wood or um, sticks, in, engraved sticks, as lots. And there's, uh, there's an expression in Norse about let fall the blood-marked chip. So they would incise a, a, a slice of wood with a rune, and then they would, they would pour blood on it 
which was a way of potentizing it. It was probably a ceremony of consecration, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but also they would stain the part that, when they wiped away the blood, the, the area that had been incised would remain red. Mm-hmm. And so they spoke about the outcome of the lot casting as how the chips fell out. And this sort of really made me understand why there's a proverb in English, let the chips fall where they may. Oh. You know, there's a lot of unconscious uh, expressions, I and mean, we, just, we just use expressions without ever knowing where they come from. Yes. But I thought that was kind of cool. So, you know, they have these in the Netherlands, and uh, both the Anglo-Saxons and the Frisians had uh, lots made out of twigs, and they would use these in uh, divinations about battle. Uh, there was some evidence of them in, in the Frisian world, which is on the borders of the Netherlands and Denmark area, uh, the islands there, with... Um, in, in legal context, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I'll find it here. Um, and the Irish were also using wooden lots that they call fidlon mm-hmm. for divination. And this is from a word that means tree or wood. And it's also the source of the word for sor- one word for sorcery, which is fidha. Say it so, again. Say it again. Fidha. It's F-I-D-H-A. I'm not exactly, it might be fidha the way they say it in Irish. Uh-huh. Irish pronunciation is always a challenge. Okay. First of all, because it, it changes the old Irish and, and the modern Irish. Uh, modern Irish, a lot of consonants simply disappear from view in their pronunciation. <laughs> oh, it's like Greek. Yeah, oh, it's Greek like that. So, so anyway, we have the runic inscriptions, and I talked about that. And so we find these not just in Scandinavia or even Britain, but... The runes, the oldest runic inscriptions, actually appear in Romania and Poland, Poland and East German uh-huh. region. So that is very late antiquity, or maybe Gothic runes from from those when you're naming those countries, and the Franks had them. And so um, you know, you just it's a really very widespread thing. Now um, you have rune poems that were composed by Norwegians, and you have an English rune poem, and you have an Icelandic rune poem, which is the only one which is entirely pagan. And so this is some of the knowledge that was being passed down through oral tradition about what do the runes mean, how do you do ceremonies, and there's some reference to making sacrifice in relation to the runes how to pray with them, how to make offerings with the runes, and, you know, as I was mentioning, how to wear them as protective amulets. So one way that this comes up in ceremony is in midwifery, so that uh, there's uh, one of the Valkyries in uh, a saga tells uh, the, the hero how um, about her, her rune craft, her, her uh-huh. knowledge of rune magic. Yes. And so she talks about runes that will help you speak well, that will give you wisdom in counsel. Uh, there are victory runes and sea runes for protection on the high seas, and also for healing wounds and for childbirth. And this is an interesting piece because yes, yes. she describes 
describes it a little bit for us. It's just not very much, but it's, we're lucky to get this. The midwife should put the help runes on her palm. Not, not clear from this whether she actually paints them under her hands or whether she's actually holding them in some way. And she grasps the wrists of the birthing mother and, quote, ask the Deseer's aid. So she's asking the ancestral grandmothers to help this woman give birth to her child. And then another piece in the Icelandic sagas has uh, women using runecraft to send messages to each other. And so in one of them, uh, Gudrun, who had gotten married off to Attila the Hun and was not a happy marriage, uh, is sending a warning to her sister-in-law because her brothers are planning to come visit and she knows her husband is going to kill them. And so she, in one of the versions, she inscribes runes and she sends a message to her sister, Kostbera. And in the other version, she doesn't even write anything. The rune is actually a, a ring that she sends to her sister. And this was often done as a way to say, this is a message from me. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, this, this messenger is authorized. But the only message was that the, rune, the ring had been wrapped around with wolf hair. And so that was a message of danger. Ah. And then the reci- recipient of these messages, Kostbera, and also one of her, her other, uh, one of her female in-laws, start to have precognitive dreams of danger. And both of them are trying to dissuade their husbands from going to visit Gudrun and, and Attila. And the men aren't listening to the women. And I say, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to go. And the women are like, no, no, don't go, they're going to kill you. So, which is what happens, of course, mm-hmm. in the story. So in, in, in one way, one could see runes as a, as a language of consciousness, as a, yeah. as a code. Yeah. And uh, like, for instance, um, I interviewed this woman who wrote a book about uh, how she, down, she tried to download um, signs that she got on during LSD uh, experiments, and they look like runes. She tried to download them. I'm not understanding that part. What do you yes, mean? she tried to to uh, mentally. Okay, that's uh, what you meant. Yes, yes, she tried to mentally understand a language that she heard on um, on the LSD medicine. And it came down as runes, and uh, it comes in as runes, and uh, very similar to runes. Uh huh. So it came through in symbols. It came through in symbols. Thank because you. Really, exactly. When you say it, it's a language of signs, it's a language of symbols, and then symbols. Symbol is like this very potent way that you know there are associations of meaning with particular signs, and. So, you know, again, this could be very culturally specific, but, you know, everywhere, you know, certain symbols may be associated with light or, you know, the directions or so forth. Yeah, so, so they, they were, the symbols became, the communication through symbols 
became their jumping off point in these stories for further psychic exploration of, okay, what's going on? What, what, well, yeah. You know, and so they have dreams. And there's a lot about dreams in, in the sagas that sometimes ancestral women will come into the dream and appear to the person. And there, there was one man who had a dream that the, the beast, the female ancestor, who had belonged to his grandfather or his uncle, I forget who it was, appears to him. And he understood from that that his grandfather had died and that now the beast was coming to him because, you know, she was going to become his protector. And she appears in the form of a gigantic woman who was so huge that her shoulders were level with the mountaintop. You know, so there's this very majestic aspect to these female ancestors. And this is the other thing that I talk about in this chapter. Uh, we, we might want to come back to runes because we haven't yet talked about the Halya Rune. But I just want to uh, get this in because somehow in the process of writing this chapter, a whole section on it expanded into the theme of women, well, actually from the language, who commune with ancestors. Maybe I'm going to have to go in order because I see what happened here now. Okay. All right. So, so there's this really interesting Gothic story that was written down in the 500s by uh, one of the early literate Goths, and uh, this guy, Jordanes. And he describes how there was a king of the Ostrogoths in the Ukraine who was persecuting seeresses who were called Aliorune. And so this is what Jordana says. He discovered among his people several wise women who were called Haliorunas in the native language. Mm-hmm. So the word is interesting because it has resonance with the word for the underworld in various other Germanic languages, like hell in English, but also Dutch and Icelandic and German, hulle, um, which also means cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, the realm of the dead. So it looks to, as if these Gothic priestesses had to do with underworld mysteries. Halio Runa seems to be the, the translate as to underworld mysteries. And thus, they were priestesses of the ancestors. Hmm. That, that's how it looks to me. And so this word persists in other Germanic languages that we know about from later written sources, you know, still in the early Middle Ages, but later on in German, Old English. And they call the same name, Heliruna, Helrun, Helrinigu, various different names like that. And so this word has generally been translated as sorceress or witch, but the etymology, again, suggests the name has to do with ancestor veneration. Mm-hmm. So, so one linguist defines Helrun as one having knowledge of the secrets of the dead, or who knows the secrets of hell. And hell here doesn't mean like the Christian hell, but the underworld of the ancestors. Hell whisperers. Hell whisperers, isn't yeah. that great? Yeah, I love Because runa can mean to whisper or to murmur. And so what that, that translation would put us in the direction of women who are oracular speech of the ancestors, that this is what they're doing. And so, 
And Latin sources also definitely point in that direction because they described Haleoruna as necromantia, which means calling up the dead for soothsaying. Right. Right. So that's a whole very interesting complex of names. And it, it, it's not entirely employed to women, but it seems to be very heavily weighted toward women. And, and the word uh, linguistically, rune, runa, is feminine in the Germanic languages. And so, well, you know, sometimes you will see academic sources refer to this as necromancy, and I really don't like that because it gives a whole wrong impression, you know, of ceremonies of magicians who, uh, you know, kind of like an esoteric uh, ceremonial magic where they're, they're ordering the spirits around. And this isn't, I don't think this is what was going on. It was much more, it was much more a kinship practice you know, that had to do with invocation, but in a much more um, incantational way, you know, not reciting formulas and so forth. And and so there's some record of chants to the dead that are we find in Old German and in Frankish. And so, for example, there's a, a catalog of superstitions, as it was titled, from about uh, the year 800, uh, talking about the Frankish dead Cisas, which means, uh, the linguists say it means the songs for the dead. And the, this Latin document calls it sacrilege over the dead. <laughs> so there's a real big disconnect between the peasant practice and what the priesthood had to say about all of this. Anyway, all of that led me more and more to be thinking about ancestor veneration in the old European cultures. And that was not something that I really was attuned to when I started writing this book back in 1978. You know, I was thinking about goddesses. Yes. And I was thinking, of course, about witches. But it, there's a way in which some of the witch names themselves seem to point in this direction of ancestor ceremony. And so I have a section here, I don't know if we want to go into all the linguistics, but there's a series of Anglo-Saxon names that refer to witches by names like song mysteries and uh, the, the hell rune name that we saw before there, which seems to mean, uh, or the burg rune, mysteries of the burial mound. And, so, and, and sometimes even the names, we can't tell, is it in fact a living human witch? Or, or a ceremony, an ancestral priestess, or are they actually talking about the ancestral spirits themselves using these names like Liodrona and Hagtessa and uh, various other words that they're often comparing to the words for the Furies in, in Greek. But, you know, it got me really thinking about what kinds of ancestral ceremonies were going on. And so this leads us in turn to looking at the fairy face or the elves or the alfar as they're described in Scandinavia and uh, the way that all of those things tie together with witches and ancestors and magic and even ecstatic dance. Mm. You know, um, in very many places, the, the ceremonies of the ancestors involve chant and dance and drumming, sometimes masks, mm -hmm. and uh, shifts in consciousness. You know, you go into 
the ancestral realm. Take your consciousness on a journey to other states, you know, deeper states of union, perhaps you could call it, that lead you into a, a place where you can commune because you're outside of time-space matrix. You know, you're in timelessness so that the dead are alive. Yeah, what's the... the thought crosses my mind is you never get old because you're already dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, then that's a theme of a lot of the fairy face stories. All the There's just too many even to catalog all the stories about someone who was either carried off by the fairies or comes upon them dancing near one of the mounds. Mm-hmm. And they take... British and Irish. They take her. Yeah. They take the person, man or woman... And they go off and they have this brilliant night of dancing and the most glorious music that's ever been heard and feasting and joyousness. And then when dawn comes, the person thinks, well, that was really a fun night. And they, they step out of the fairy circle and they realize that centuries have passed as hours. Wow. You know, these, these really spooky stories. Yeah. You know that there is this because... Those realms are outside of time and space. And so, you know, you go into the cave of Sapiente Sibila, the, the wise Sibyl, yes. the deified ancient oracular Sibyls of, of, of the, the old Italian world. And she's in there, and there's no time there. You don't die. It's immortality. You're just, you know, it, and it's joy, and it's, you know, consuming... Uh, delicious foods and drink and making love and mm-hmm. carrying on music enchanting music is always part of this and so like in the uh, some of the alpine traditions are interesting and in, in France and Germany you'll see a lot of stories where the advent of the fairy host or the wild host as it's often called mm-hmm. the wild hunt even it's preceded by the chiming of bells or some kind of elusive melody that is so enticing that the person cannot resist moving toward it. Mm-hmm. You know, so all these stories of enchantment. Well, I have to say to the people who are listening, this is just a little introduction. Order the book. It's called Witches and Pagans. And... Um, we can order it at uh, at dot net or just look for uh, Witches and Pagans Max Dashu and you'll find it. Wonderful. Well, Max, we could go on forever. Yes, we could. We and that's, it's always interesting to talk to you. Oh, because I understand this stuff. Um, thank you, and I'm I'm thinking about uh, um, having been brought up on Grimm and Perrault. Yeah. And, you know, how it is that uh, in my generation in Europe, you were still brought up on very old stories, very old fairy and, uh, and, and giants and <laughs> stories. Well, that, and, and it's in the landscape. You know, to some extent. I mean, there's a lot of the flavor of it is still here and there in these corners, you know. The, you go into the old churches and you look up on the tall capital top and there is the mermaid woman. Yeah, yeah. 
or the Shilinagi. So that's a reason. That's a reason for people to buy this book. Very big reason because it stirs memories that are hidden by the present propaganda culture. Yeah, it's really ancestral memory recovery, and it's a source book for that because a lot of this information is just hidden. It's very hard to find. It's not a lot of it is not in English. You know, and so just a way to kind of concentrate it all so you can find it in one place, or at least a starting point. Thank you, Max. I love being with you, too. It's fascinating. Thank you, Johanna. Look forward to the next one. Okay. <laughs>